This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 466. We live in conversations like fish live in water. We're in them all the time, so we don't think about them much. And as a result, we often find ourselves stuck in cyclical patterns of unproductive behaviors. We listen half-heartedly, react emotionally, and respond habitually like we're on autopilot. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. If you want to achieve true success in business and in life, intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow your ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. That author today is Chuck Wisner. He's written a book called The Art of Conscious Conversations, transforming how we talk, listen, and interact. I'm going to ask Chuck to share about how our own patterned thinking and reactions set us up oftentimes for stressful conversations, what our habit of thinking one thing while saying something else is doing to us and how to stop it, how to approach conversations with people from differing points of view more productively, and much more. Next week, I'll be presenting an interview with Megan Hyatt Miller, CEO of Full Focus, formerly the Michael Hyatt Company. Megan and her dad, Michael, have written a book called Mind Your Mindset. As I was preparing for that interview, I was thinking about Michael and the time I had a chance to interview him and his book, Vision Driven Leader. And so I decided that that was going to be the book that we add this week to the Read to Lead community. That's where you can go and get a free book summary every single week. We've got several books in the leadership category right now, several in the habits category, also books on mindset, communication, our topic today, entrepreneurship, productivity, even artificial intelligence, and more. You can join the community right now for free, interact with others, those who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do, get a free book summary every week, jeffbrown.me, the place to go. Again, that's Jeff Brown, J-E-F-F-B-R-O-W-N dot me. Hope to see you there soon. Chuck Wisner is president of Wisner Consulting. His client list includes Google, Rivian, Apple, Tesla, Harvard Business School, Ford, and Chrysler. He was a senior mediator affiliated with the Harvard Mediation Program and was among the first to be certified through the Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching Program at the Newfield Institute. His brand new book, again, is called The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. I'm thrilled to have you here, Chuck. Thanks for joining us on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to ask you first about your experience with a particular business coach uh, years ago named mm-hmm. Linda Reed. Tell me about Linda. Wow. That's such a great story. There's a, the, a, a brief snippet in the book about it. I was uh, in an architecture firm and I was associate at the time. And we had uh, grown to be a mid-sized firm of 40 people or so. And one of the original partners had a drinking problem. And you know, we were a bunch of guys hanging around doing architecture. That wasn't a problem. <laughs> but when we grew, it became an issue for our staff and for our clients. Mm. And so we were like, oh, God, what do we do? He was a good friend of ours. It was, you know, it's, it's very touchy subject. So we hired, we need, know we needed help. We were architects. We didn't know anything about how to deal with that. And we burned through two consultants that were pretty useless. Mm. And then the third person came in was Linda Reed. And Linda came in, interviewed us individually, talked to us collectively, made an assessment, came back to us and helped us manage through this thing 
where we all learned something about ourselves, we learned something about each other, and we ended up with some actions to take forward. And that that sounds very, you know, dry, but what happened to me was I was like totally struck by what did she just do? How did she do that? That <laughs> felt like magic. Right. You know? And because I I have a long time interest in psychology and philosophy and spirituality, it just felt like she was doing something that I hadn't touched before or hadn't experienced before. Mm. And we became good friends and I just got bitten. It's sort of like I, I couldn't turn my heart and mind away from it. And I spent four years actually studying with her teachers, uh, mm-hmm. something called the ontology of language, and then spent four years retooling myself and changed careers. So she was that spark. Mm. And, and here you are today, uh, an author as a result of that. I think that's a really cool story, how that completely changed the trajectory that your career was supposed to, quote unquote, take. That's right, right. I think it's important to, to point out here at the outset that this is not a book giving advice on, on, on how we present ourselves, right? Our, our tone of voice, our right. vocabulary, our posture. It's more about connecting with our, our own thoughts and, and feelings. Talk about how those internal processes end up driving our successful conversations and their level of importance over the more sort of tangible cues that we rely on. Yeah, the book really delineates some new information, what I call the DNA of conversations about how they work. But when you start looking at the DNA of conversations, you're you're going to end up back with yourself <laughs> because <laughs> you're you're the common denominator in every conversation you enter, whether it's stressful or not stressful. So I use the word patterns a lot. We all have patterns of how we interact and how mm. we react to things. And those patterns, often we didn't choose. We just learned them through culture, family experiences. So, But rather than be in a pattern where we're reactive, it's much healthier psychologically to be reflective. Like, why am I reacting that way? Why am I having that emotional trigger? So that reflection is a very different way of taking care of ourselves and beating ourselves over their head and say, oh, God, I did it again. Why do I keep doing the same thing? Um, So that reflection piece is really important because once we have a reflection and we become aware of a pattern, we then are in a new spot where we can purposely try on some new thinking or try on some new behavior. And that's what I call practices. So at the end of each chapter, there's practices that are really asking the reader, like, well, try this on, you know, and it's not a read where you can just read it and go, oh, yeah, change your tone of voice, change this. It, it asks you to do some serious self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And then you take that into your conversation with other people. So the, the first conversation is very much about understanding our, our own world. And then mm-hmm. the next three are about how we bring that into our conversations with others. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of the storytelling conversations, the, the stories that we tell ourselves, which are, which are often not true. So if I understand you correctly, Chuck, uh, you're saying that if somebody says something that, say, offends me, uh, mm-hmm. that the, the, the one thing I want to do at the outset is take some responsibility for that. Like I, I get to choose my response. Is that in essence what you're saying? Yeah. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word choose right away because first mm-hmm. we have to become aware of why is that um, judgment that's coming my way? Mm-hmm. Why is that triggering me? Right. And it might be a soft spot for me. It might be, it might be true. It might not be true. But one analogy I, I like or metaphor I like is like, if there's something coming at you that's poisonous or doesn't feel right, without reflection or awareness, we let that go in and then we have our emotional reaction, you know, and our whole brain, our amygdala, everything kicks in and we have our chemicals and our reaction. 
But rather than letting it go in to be self-aware enough, see when something's coming at me, can I catch it, <laughs> you know, mm. before it, it, it tr- does the trigger. And then I, from there, I can make a decision. I can say, well, do I care what that person thinks? <laughs> Is there some truth in that? Is there no truth in that? And that's a much wiser way to sort of navigate that kind of uh, stressful interaction. So it's really, it, it is a first self-awareness and then there's choice. Gotcha. Gotcha. These, these methods then are going to help us minimize what would otherwise often be, I think to use your term, autopilot reactions. Right. And that's those patterns. We have patterns. And I like the word patterns because it takes judgment out of it. It's not like, you know, instead of our mind going, spinning out of control and going, yeah. oh my God, I did it again, or I can't believe I looked this awful, I can't believe they think that about me. Instead of doing that spinning, right, mm. we can be a little more curious and a little less judgmental about our uh, ourself and say, well, that's an interesting pattern because, you know, the curiosity goes, well, gosh, where did that come from? And for many of the patterns that I discovered, it was from, I picked it up from my father. I picked Mm. it up from some experience I had and it stuck, you know? Mm. The idea of reflecting on or just becoming aware of our patterns gives us a little space so we aren't quite so hard on ourselves. Something that, that grabbed my attention was this discussion of our private conversations, the suggestion that we're thinking one thing while we say something else. Mm-hmm. Over time, what does that habit do to us? And, and how can we work to put an end to that, to stop it? Yeah, I've done this exercise with hundreds, maybe a thousand people. And what always surprises me, well, the exercise in the book is like you literally take an event or a conversation that triggers you and you literally document that conversation. Mm. You document what was said as though it were recorded. And then you document what you were thinking and feeling. What's surprising when I do this with people is how many people didn't have a conscious awareness of how powerful that private conversation was. Mm. You know, it's, it's running, it's running, and it's so in the background of our consciousness that we just are used to it being there. But when we shine the light of awareness on it, mm. you go, oh my God, I really thought that? And when people put down their private conversation on paper and look at it, what they see is it's judgmental, it's negative, there's curse words. It's all those negative patterns that we have. So the idea is that if we don't recognize those and work with them, they continue to create stress in our lives. I mean, I really do believe that the bigger the gap between our private thoughts and our public conversation, the more stress we just live in Mm. without awareness, without knowing that that stress is happening. And so I liken it to toxicity. There's this toxicity and it's like crude oil that comes out of the ground isn't very useful. In fact, it could do a lot of damage. Mm. But when it gets processed, it gets processed into useful materials and useful fuels, et cetera, to fly airplanes and cars, et cetera. So we can process our private conversation rather than have it sort of create, you know, noise in our head and 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 that not have us as present in a conversation that we could be. And so that again, the reflection of like looking at it, well, what if, if I have a thought that says, I can't believe that idiot just said that, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Let's investigate that thought because underneath, you probably do have valuable concerns. You probably do have standards that might be different about how people treat people or how people discuss things. Mm. So that processing really helps us minimize that gap. And often we can transform the negative into a productive or a positive conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting how that plays into the level of stress that we might feel. Mm. That point you made about 
if there's a gap between what we're thinking and what we're saying, there's the stress that we're living with. That's really powerful. Sort of related to that, talk about resetting from specifically worry, whether that's personal worries or maybe that's worry from just the state of the world that we're in right now. What are some ways we can we can do that? So in the book, I talk about four key questions to help us process. And one of them is concerns, mm. which is the thing that wakes you up at two in the morning. I have two sons. They're now in their 30s. But when they were young teenagers and they weren't showing up at two o'clock in the morning, or they would call at three o'clock in the morning, you know, the, all, the, <laughs> all the worries and the bubbles, the concerns bubble up in your brain. Mm. So concerns help us manage the world, worries help us, but they also do a lot of damage because there are certain things that are either projections that we're projecting into the future, or we are carrying something from the past that we can't change. And when, when those two things are at play, rather than being present with, well, what do I, what right now, what do I know right now? What can I do right now? How can I be present? Those kind of projections, which we can't control, or we have no, we don't know, we're not mind readers, we don't know what will happen two weeks from now, and the carryovers from the past, which we can't change, those are worries that do damage. Mm. And so when we look at them, when we take a fresh look at them and shine a light of awareness on them, we actually can get a little more grounded in reality and a little more grounded in the present moment. And, and that's, that's really useful. I mean, there are times that I, if a worry pops up, I just, I can just ground it. Look, I'm lying in my bed. It's warm. I'm, my head is on a pillow. I, you know, I'm very comfortable. Let's be here right now. And I don't know what the morning will bring, but I can't spend my night just agitating like this. So it's, it's one technique. Meditation is another. And there's a lot of techniques that sort of help us calm those things. Does that answer your question? You know, it does. And it sparked a thought about my next question. And, and that is just so over the last few years in particular, it seems to have become increasingly difficult for us to have meaningful conversations with people who think differently than we do, particularly in the area mm. of, of, of politics, of course. Uh, right. You know, the, the person on the other side is not only wrong, they're evil, you know, and, and I want nothing to right. do with them. You know, how can we approach these conversations with people of differing points of view in a more productive way? Yeah. I just wrote an article about political conversations and the state of things. Yeah, it's a very it's a very divisive time. For me, there's a fundamental shift that has happened where part of the reason we can't have productive conversations is that the crucial fundamental idea of society and culture thriving because of science and facts and what we what we share as human beings as reality, right? Mm-hmm. That foundation has been eroded. And in any conversation, if we're just in the world of opinions and judgments, you know, we can go around in circles and spin our spin out, uh, you know, forever and drive ourselves crazy and have emotional triggers. And oftentimes when we disagree on things from an opinion point of view, the best thing to do is can we ground ourselves in some reality? (laughs) What do we know? What do we not know? What can we agree on Mm. that? gives us at least a foundation to respect one another and have a tolerant uh, mutual learning conversation. So I have, in the last several years, I've actually walked away, not walked away from literally, but stepped away from multiple conversations where I couldn't get the other party or Mm. parties to even have that conversation about facts and Mm. about what can we agree on. And, and so I say sometimes it's just not worth our effort. 
Now we can separate those people from their addiction or from their inability to, to see clearly, right? And we can still respect them as human beings, but we don't have to have the conversation. If we can have a conversation grounded in reality, then we have the job of sharing our opinions. And instead of sharing our opinions, and I think this is in the book, but maybe it's in articles I've written, <laughs> instead of sharing our opinions with closed fist, where you, you know I come with this around gun control with a fist and you come with a fist around gun control and we're banging fists, right? Mm -hmm. Let's get down to, let's get some facts on the table and then let's open our hands and say, here, here are my concerns. Here's how, why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking mm -hmm. and invite the other person to do the same. That way we have, we have a mutual learning conversation, respectful, tolerant conversation. We might have different standards. We might have different desires for the future, but mm -hmm. at least we can talk about those things in in a more palatable and probably productive way in the end. And I find in conversations like that, our, our goals oftentimes aren't as far off as we think they are. We just have different methods and ways of, of getting there. And we just don't see <laughs> that the end result isn't as far off as, as it seems. Yeah, yeah. We can't find that common ground Yeah, uh, be, because we're holding tightly onto and defending our position and that idea of opening our hand up. See, any position we have, any opinion we have, there are tons of thoughts underneath it. There, why do you think that way? What are your standards? You're making a judgment. What, what, why are you making that judgment? What do you want for the future? What are your desires? All those things are things we can talk about that sort of deconstruct that, that hard-held defensive fist. Uh, you, you mentioned standards. Let's, let's touch on that for a second, because you talk in the book about unconscious choices that we make, which includes things like, like standards, mm -hmm. right? How we think uh, things should or shouldn't be, or what we believe to be right or wrong, or, or what we should or shouldn't do. Can you expand on, on that a little bit more? Yeah. Of the four questions in the book, uh, standards is probably, well, they're all important, but th this one is like ubiquitous. It's everywhere. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, every opinion you have, every judgment you have is based on some standard you have, but often that standard is in the background of our consciousness. Mm. And on top of it being in the background of our consciousness, a lot of our standards we did not consciously choose, but we inherited it from our family, from our culture, from the, our education, from our experiences. And that's not to say they're right or wrong. It's just to recognize that we need to become aware of what our standards are rather than just believe that they are the right and only standard. Because if I believe my, if I'm not conscious that I have a standard about X and I enter a conversation with you, I'm not an open, I'm not there open saying, hey, here's my standard. What's yours? I'm just fighting for for the for mine to be right, right? right. So so there's there's I think standards are just it goes from my wife and I's different standards about what's the kitchen look like when we go to bed. <laughs> you know, she she yeah. wants to go to bed like a, a a maid and clean up and wake up like a queen. Well, <laughs> I like to go to bed like a king and wake up like a a servant. You know, to do the dishes. <laughs> and, and, and neither is right or wrong, but they're, yeah. they're literally two different standards. And when we can talk mm. about that, she and I can laugh about it. We can take turns, who does what, you know, but we're not at each other because I'm trying to prove my standard is right and she's trying to prove her standard is wrong. Mm. Now, that's a silly example, but you can take that to politics. You can take that to corporate America and, and, and that same idea of holding on to our standards without investigating them and sharing them plays out the same way. 
Uh, this next question is is sort of adjacent to the question I asked earlier regarding people with different points of view, I guess. But uh, I'd love for you to unpack this uh, sort of interpretation problem that most of us don't even know exists. Uh, you know, our interpretation of what someone else says rarely being accurate. Uh, what we say isn't what someone else hears, and what someone else says oftentimes isn't what we hear. Yeah, you know, we can all take a breath and just recognize that that's sort of how we're built. <laughs> that's it's how we manage the world, you know, because we we rely on something that's going on unconsciously, but often we don't realize it's going on. So, so to be aware that everything that comes into our system through our eyes, our smell, our taste, all of our senses, right, mm. our touch, everything we experience comes in through our system, and we have this brain that processes billions of bits of information, you know, every second, and. Based on our whole history, we get this information in, and we literally have parts of our brain that are trying to make sense of things. It's a sense-making piece. And so what happens is we makes, our brains make sense. It delivers to us, I'll, I'll call it a story, it delivers to us a, a story like, oh, here's what's happening. He's saying X. Mm. And then, depending on our history and our patterns, we might have an emotional reaction, right? Mm. So... Being aware that um, we're constantly filtering, our brains are constantly filtering, and often at a very unconscious level to us. Mm. So nothing we can do about that because our, you know, our brains keep us alive; they keep us sane if we're lucky. Mm. <laughs> and but so nothing we can do about that. But when we recognize that my interpretation or my reaction is simply my interpretation and my reaction, I can relax a bit. And instead of defending it, I can engage with you in, in, a, in a more empathetic, more uh, open way. Humility is important here because, geez, I, I, this is why it makes sense to me. Tell me why it makes sense to you, right? Mm. But it takes a little bit of humility and courage to make that move. What would be your advice for, uh, you know, let's say we've had one of these conversations and we hadn't yet heeded your advice, meaning it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, would yeah. be your advice for seeking forgiveness when you when you recognize you've said something and now you regret it? The last chapter, not the last chapter. Yes, I, I think the last part of the book is about commitment conversations, mm. and it's a very powerful conversation that we live in daily. It's how we get things done, how we coordinate action with other people. Yet we have little awareness about actually how that works. And part of that is when we're in a conversation or we make a promise or we make a commitment and it doesn't go well, even to your point, a small thing where I say something, which probably is out of bounds, it wasn't expected, right? Or hurt the other person. Our ability to recognize that and our ability to recognize and then go, oh, I, I did something that caused some harm. And so w if we can acknowledge that, then we can go back and we can go, we can say to the other person, listen, when we were having that conversation, I saw in your face your, how upset you were when I said X, Y, and Z. And I later, you know, two minutes, two hours, two weeks later, I realized that that was really unfair of me. And I want to tell you what I was thinking. And I also want to tell you that in the future, I will be much more aware and much more careful so we can have better dialogue together, better interactions. So if we do something where we break a promise or we say something where we regret, an apology is 
only as good as your commitment to what you'll do tomorrow differently. <laughs> right. And offering that up is a really lovely way to invite people into being together and talking together differently in the future. You, you sort of have to, to behave your way right into making that apology real. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, again, it goes back to that the notion in the beginning of talking about reflection. Just reflect on, geez, when I said that, what was I thinking? What was I feeling? What were my concerns? And, oh, how could I do that differently? How can I speak to my concerns or you know, talk to this person about these things in a different way? And then the apology is, is very heartfelt. You've done your work. You probably are being a bit vulnerable, but you know, vulnerability is a is a powerful thing. It's not a weak thing. It's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a strong it's a strength. Because if I show a little vulnerability, my experience is that that helps other people relax mm-hmm. and be more vulnerable. Yeah. And you know, the other person might say, "Oh gosh, I shouldn't have reacted. I, I didn't I didn't know you saw my face cringe with <laughs> with <laughs> with anger or whatever." Mm-hmm. And and they can go, "Wow, they can be a little more vulnerable." And that really opens up conversations. Where we can all be a little more real, a little more tolerant. I've heard it said, Chuck, that uh, some of the world's most successful people are really good at saying no. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and you say in your book that there's power in saying no. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah. So in this commitment conversation, the, which I call the commitment dance, it literally is requests and offers come our way constantly, mm. you know, from will you take out the garbage to you will sign this paper to will you help us write a mission statement. Mm. This is just how things work. And generally, there are three responses that we can make to that. Yes and no are the normal ones. And in my experience in working with people is that we are all a bit addicted to yes. (laughs) It's our default. Yeah, it's our default. And so we're very quick to say, you know, someone walks by your desk, hey, can you get me some pictures for that presentation tomorrow by, you know, tomorrow at nine or something? And you say, sure. And they, you made a promise, but you don't know really who it's for, how many pictures they want, what the quality needs to be, you know, all that kind of stuff. Too much ambiguity. Yeah. Too much, too much quick. Yes. Or sure. Okay. Right. And, and it's not that yes is no, but we, we should always stop before we say yes to get clarity on what we're making a promise for. Right. No needs to be part of our conversation. I had a teacher, his name was Rafael Echeverria, and he said, A request without a possible no isn't a request. Yeah, that's true. So, right? If it's if you if you can't say no, it really falls in the category of a demand. Right. You will do this, right? Right. <laughs> and and so you know, no is not the common voice that we want to have in corporations or even with, with our family and friends. But there are times where our boundaries or our need to protect ourselves or our need to say no because we can't do something, either because we're not competent to do it or because we don't have time or whatever the reason is, we need to have that as part of our vocabulary. Mm. Um, anything uh, about the book that I haven't asked uh, that you would like for us to know? We already discussed how the book has a lot to offer, but it also asks a lot of the reader mm-hmm. to really do some investigation. The one misunderstanding often is the book is organized around the four different types of conversations. And I think one misunderstanding is that they, they're, so, they're really distinct things. They're distinct because we can learn about each but then they all sort of 
play together mm. in this symphony, right? They play out daily. And, and when we have a better idea of why they work and how they work, we can, we can navigate that uh, dance of each conversation coming in and out of our lives. The same teacher that taught me about the request without a no, he said, if I took you to Alaska and you spent six months with Inuits to learn their 27 names for snow, and then we came back to New England, you would never see snow the same way, <laughs> right? Because now you have these, you have names and you have pictures in your mind about different kinds of snow. Mm. And I think for me, the book is like trying to do that with conversations, understanding conversations with a new, in a new way mm. so that we can't be in them quite as innocently, but be in them more purposefully. I like that. Finally, I'll ask this being uh, the podcast all about books yeah. for, you, for you to share maybe some of your favorites from years past books, maybe that have had an impact on you or maybe your career. Boy, if I go way back in architecture school, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, but I, I, I had a um, teacher who had us read a book by Goethe, the German philosopher artist, called Elective Affinities. And it was, it's, it's, it's a funky book because it's written so far ago. So the language is so, so, so the 18th century or 19th century mm. language. But fundamentally, what that book did for me is it made me realize the idea is that there's four characters and the whole book is about what happens when those four characters get together, those four people get together and the chemistry that happens. And his, the idea of elective affinities is there is this energetic chemistry that happens between human beings, just like there is between chemicals. And to be aware of that is a freeing thing so that you don't do so much self-blame. And I was going through some times, I was a young, young man, 25 or something. I was going through some tough times and I was like being hard on myself. And that book helped me relax and go, oh, wow, this is why I'm attracted to that way. Or this is why I'm doing that. That was really powerful. That was a long time ago. Mm. In mid-career, Ken Wilber, who wrote a book called, uh, many books, but one of his books is called A Brief History of Everything, is a great philosopher teacher mm. um, that he came up with a model called the integral model, I-N-T-E-G-R-A-L. And he brings together a philosophy and science and psychology and social issues and individual thinking and behavior in a really beautiful way to show how all those things are connected and they don't have to be competitive. And so I, I really like how he thinks. I studied with him years back. And then recently, I like Uval Harari's book, uh, what is it? Um, Was it Sapiens? Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Sapiens. And then he has he has two others, I believe. Yeah. But Sapiens is really beautiful because he gives us a different historical look at how human beings evolved mm. and how the major thing that happened from our brain development was when we developed storytelling. Mm. That was the, the cradle of how when civilization was born, because then we could have larger communities based on stories that we all shared, whether it was myths or whether it was the value of, of, of a coin, mm. we all shared those stories so we could create our cultures and our civilizations. So it's a, it's a lovely, fresh look at, at, at how we evolved. I've been doing this a long time, but I still impressed myself when I was able to, to throw out Sapiens just from the author's name. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thank you. I usually on the tip of my tongue and it just wouldn't come up. Thank no you very much. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Chuck Wisner's book is what I think you need to read. It's called The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. It's well worth uh, your time. Uh, Chuck, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and sharing of your, your experiences so generously. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoy these conversations. At the show notes page for this episode, you'll find a link to Chuck's book, The Art of Conscious Conversations. Also, the books he recommended. You'll find other resources there as well. All of that is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 466 for episode 466. If you want to hang out with about 350 other people who give a high priority to things like personal and professional development and get a free book summary every week, be sure to head on over to jeffbrown.me and join the Read to Lead community. That's jeffbrown.me. As I hinted at the top of the show, I didn't actually hint. I was straightforward about it 100%, and why wouldn't I be? Megan Hyatt Miller is my guest for next week's episode. We'll be talking about their new book. I mean, her and her dad's new book, Michael Hyatt. It's called Mind Your Mindset. The science that shows success starts with your thinking. That book is already out. As a matter of fact, I suggest you go ahead and pick it up. Again, that's Mind Your Mindset. That's our focus next week on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.